Welcome to episode 3 of Cloister Bell, a new weekly Doctor Who podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 3 of our brand new weekly Doctor Who podcast. We're continuing our journey through Series 11 and beyond. My name's Rob. And I'm Liam. And in this podcast, we will be talking about the recent episode, Rosa. But before we do that, I just want to follow on from the previous episode, which was the Ghost Monument. Um, uh, The reason being is because uh, Daniel uh, Martinez uh, got in contact with me just following on a point that we made. When we were talking about that episode... We were talking about how the characters developed throughout the story and about their sense of of confidence. And he got in contact with me on Twitter and he said, Interesting how she, meaning the Doctor, was attempting to stay optimistic only to turn hopeless near the end. I'm reminded of the fifth Doctor and how he was cheery but was still vulnerable human and gave the sort of flawed impression that could make one wonder how much he's doubting his abilities. Which I actually thought was... um, was actually quite a good point and I think followed on from the very first podcast when we were talking about the beginning of the series and how I felt that perhaps Chibnall was inspired by the Peter Davison era. So I find it interesting that Daniel Martinez has actually kind of followed up on that point. I think we just have to remember that the Doctor is fundamentally human at the end of the day. Yeah, somehow we tend to think there's always these rules that the Doctor's bound to, like that the Doctor never never carries a gun. But yeah, there's a lot of instances where the Doctor does. Yeah, in the sense that you know, he's he's not this uh, superhero. And in fact, in the Seeds of Doom, he, you know, he says that he's got a pistol um, to protect himself. And then mm. Sarah points out that he'll never use it. And then he simply says, true, but they don't know that, do they? I think it's it's one of those things that varies depending on the characterization of the Doctor. Um Tom Baker was, and John Pertwee's doctor before him was seen to be quite hands-on and, and willing to use violence as a, as, a, as a last resort. Whereas other mm. doctors, and I think Jodie Whittaker is going to be one of them. Whereas the idea of, of of using a pistol is you know completely abhorrent. So I think it, it's one of those things of, uh, I mean, um, Daniel Martinez makes a good point, um, but I think it's one of those things where it really depends on the character of the Doctor, we can see it crop up. And I think on those occasions, it's always seen as a last resort. So, for example, in the end of time, it's a big dramatic moment that the Doctor's brandishing a gun and it was it was sort of built up. If it, yeah. It's not something that he wants to do. Um, so it can be something for, for yeah. dramatic license. And then again with John Hurt carrying a gun, that's a culmination of everything that's come to a head and he's finally gave up. And what he believes in, possibly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with John Hurt's Doctor, the whole thing is he's effectively abandoned being the Doctor, and he he you know he became a warrior. When we do finally see him in the um, the fiftieth anniversary special, that's towards the end of his time of of being the the War Doctor. Um, mm-hmm. And even though that the, the, the big payoff there is he's he's sort of he's tapping into his. Um, pacifist principles, if you like, of, of what it is to be the Doctor. Um, but that's after many, mm. many years of having a, a long and bloody war. There are many things that uh, of the War Doctor we still haven't seen. So, Daniel Martinez, um, it was great that he got in contact, and I, I really like that sort of um, that connection that we have with a, with a listener, and hopefully that's something that we can build on as these podcasts um, carry on. Um, and it was great. To, it was great to have have those things pointed out. So moving on to the most recent episode, Rosa. The, did you notice the BBC One ident before the show? Oh no, no, I didn't. Oh, you mean sorry? It, it was, was in Newcastle. Um, yeah, it was. The yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I picked up on that straight away. Um, which, which is where? We yeah, are. yeah. Uh, we're from Newcastle, so that that was uh, that was quite nice. <laughs> bit of bit of uh, bit of local pride there yeah. before the uh, before the episode again, started. Um, so that was quite nice. We'll go straight to the opening titles, so there's no pre-title scene. 
Yeah, that's right. We um, we went straight into the title sequence, and then straight into there, we we went straight into the story, and it was a, it was a fantastic setup. Um, the this is the first episode in the series which isn't exclusively written by Chris Chibnall. He um, Rose is co-written by um, Mallory Blackman, um, a great writer. F- um, to write for the series um she was children's laureate from 2013 to 2015 and she's well known for her claimed Norton Cross's novel series so to have someone like her uh, come in to, to write for the series I think is is a is a really big boon um and a lot of the research a lot of research has obviously gone into this story uh, that's correct um briefly you know, Rosa Parks is is famous as it's explored in the episode, um, for refusing to give up her seat for a white person, uh, which was a big deal in uh, in America during 1955 because there was racial segregation and there was racial segregation everywhere. Um, it was an insane and absolutely ridiculous um, social policy to have, but it was there. And this seemingly simple... Um, form of protest had massive positive repercussions it didn't instantaneously make things better in america um in, t- uh, in terms of racial integration but it was it was an important step um for the for the civil rights movement um the way that the episode begins is that rosa parks um encounters she she tries to get onto a bus and encounters the the racist attitudes of the bus driver uh, James Blake and this this takes place in the 40s uh, which is some time before uh, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat in 1955 and you would think that this would actually be a fictionalised account of, of what happened you know as a, as a way of establishing who this bus driver is and how he's actually going to be um, important later on in the story but actually that Mm. encounter is true that did actually happen um and rosa parks actually from what i've read actually from that point on said she would refuse to get onto a bus in which he would be the bus driver um so she never encountered Mm. him um until that time in 1955 so we're straight into that i thought that was a remarkable um setup uh for the episode and uh, as i said was actually a true account there's a but having said that there's an awful lot going in on uh, in that scene the most powerful line of dialogue in it for me though was that when she's about to get off the bus to then to then go on, on to the um, the back entrance. She says, you better not hit me. And mm. that, that's the first hint of the constant threat of violence which is which is seen throughout the which is seen throughout the entire episode. Um, and we, so we really hit the ground running um, with the with the themes that this episode contains. Yeah, it's quite a strong theme. It's something that's only been touched upon lightly in the show, I think, before. Without drawing up too many examples, um, I'm remembering um, Martha in the family of blood uh, and human nature. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it's interesting that since the episode was broadcast from the off, it has got an awful lot of um, news coverage. It's this episode has um, exploded. Everyone is talking about it. Um, you just have to go on on Twitter. There's there's people the uh, the, mm-hmm. the writers involved have been responding to the um, to how positive the episode has has um, has been received, as have um, some of the actors in it. Um, but as uh, uh, so has it been in the news? It's interesting because the the Telegraph, for example, has written an article on it, which is why the fuss over Rosa Parks' Doctor Who has always explored racism. 
And that's true to a point. I mean, mm. the very first Dalek story back in 63-64, there's, there's a big thing in there about what the Daleks are. Ian, who's the companion in that story, he mentions how um, how the Daleks have a dislike for the unlike. So that's been a constant running thing. It, it, yeah. That thing was picked up in the Sylvester McCoy era, in, particularly in Remembrance of the Daleks, where... Um, Ace comes across a no-coloured sign. Uh, yeah. There's a there's a moment in Ghostlight, for example, where she's talking about one of her one of her black friends. Um, her house was firebombed by racists. So there there are these moments mm. scattered out, and you, and you mentioned um, Martha in the David Tennant era. So there are these moments where it is a theme that's explored but never never prominently in the foreground yeah that's true and that's why rosa parks really stands out because racism is at the forefront it's not a theme to be explored it's there at the forefront and we are looking at it we're looking at it both in terms of um we're looking at it both in terms of a historical piece that this is what America was like in 1955 although not exclusively America but it was predominantly in America hence the reason why the story is set there but also that racism is still something that um, people encounter on a day-to-day basis now in the 21st century arguably perhaps not to the same extent Mm -hmm. But it's still there Mm -hmm. and that was something that was was quite powerful you were having a look at how people were discriminated against because of the colour of their skin and how that's still the case now when you have Yasmin and Ryan um, in a scene together where they're talking about you know the, the racist epithets that they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, not just in terms of strangers, but in terms of Yasmin. She even mentions it. It's something that she has to mm. face in her own job. Um, so even though yeah. things are massively improved from 1955... You know, there's still progress that needs to be made. So that's the reason why I think Rosa Parks stands yeah. out in, in this sense, is that, yes, Doctor Who has explored racism in the past, but but, but not this powerfully and, and not this overtly. And it's interesting, having to see Ryan and Yaz in this story, the, the characters weren't treated the same way. Um, I think, obviously, Ryan was treated with um, a lot of prejudice, Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Yasmin was treated um, with a bit more racial ignorance, possibly. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think the she way... didn't receive the same le- same level of racism. No, it wasn't the same level, but it was because it was interesting. How I mean, I still think Yasmin. I'd still argue that Yasmin is being underutilized in the series, but um, because mm-hmm. of the themes of this episode the fact that she is a companion does come across a bit more. Um, but yeah, it's it's racism, but in a different way. It's because it's... Because she's, because she's not clearly white, and because she's not clearly black, it's as if, you know, it's... In some... The way that that's dealt with is that she's almost invisible. So she's completely removed mm-hmm. from having any identity because, you know, the, the, the time period that they end, they don't recognise someone with... Um, with Asian ancestry, you know, the, I mean, it's, it, no. it's, it, that's where the writing was quite clever in this sense. It's, it's sort of, it's mentioned in a, in a somewhat jokey way, you know, referencing that, if, you know, saying, oh, they're being serious or they're saying that I'm Mexican and that becomes a, a slight, a yeah. like running joke. But at the same, in the same sense, there's something quite serious going on in there. It's, it's a different type of racism mm-hmm. where effectively she is invisible. Um, because she yeah. cannot be easily categorised. And of course there's that scene on the bus where she doesn't know where she fits in, where does she sit. Mm-hmm. So th- that was something else which I think was, was very cleverly uh, cleverly written in. It's, um, you know, we've, we've got racism uh, in, in its most obvious and apparent sense, but you, then you, you've also got the, the, this element of it here where, you know, it's it's racism where... Yeah, she doesn't know how she fits in because of the way that people don't know how to react to her. Because it's like, well, you're not white, but you're not black, and therefore, I'll just mm. pretend you're not there. And that's an, you know that that in itself is yeah. another form of discrimination. So that that was a clever piece of writing as well. Yeah, that that's something I didn't anticipate. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, the scene in the diner is pretty tense, but it's um, Ryan's wit that kind of pulls you out of it for a moment. It does. Um, it's sort of when when you know th- when the waitress comes up and says, you know, we don't serve blacks, and then you know he you know sort of wittily responds to that's all right, I don't eat them, and then the waitress is sort of yeah. Uh, put, you know, sort of on the back foot with that. Uh, but yeah, that that was a very good intense scene. Mm. Um, I want just going back to an earlier point I made, which was that threat of violence from the very first scene where we see Rosa Parks uh, say to the bus driver, um, "You better not hit me." The scene mm. in which um, Ryan, uh, we, we see um, t- uh, a uh, a white married couple walking down uh, down a path and uh, the woman accidentally drops a glove I think it is or it may be a, a tissue I'm not sure but she drops something and then Ryan instinctively you know mm. picks it up for them and then the man belts him right across the face now arguably I think that's probably one of the most scariest moments that Doctor Who has ever shown the reason being is because I think the scene was written and it was directed and performed beautifully in the sense that it depicted how the man belting another man simply because of the color of his skin right across the face was a perfectly natural reaction for him to do because of the society that he was in um Mm -hmm. the fact it was it was instinctive and it was apparently normal all that conveyed that made it an incredibly powerful scary scene i'm not forgetting is um i mean racism is still a thing of course but looking at this historically really it's not all that long ago this is only 1955 um i mean i know i'm pointing out the obvious here but i thought that i thought that was an incredible incredible moment so you, you not only have you got it um have this threat of violence uh written in through a line of dialogue we actually see it and you really get a, mm-hmm. a you really get a pervasive sense of how tense it must have been living at that time mm-hmm. and in fact um when rosa park steps in to defuse the situation when that married couple walk off she then turns to uh to ryan and the rest of the group there and she's, she mentions something else, which is also historically true and very upsetting. She mentions Emmett Till. Now, that again is something uh, that, that happened. Emmett Till, um, because this story is, is set uh, in late 1955. Emmett Till, on mm. the 20th of, 28th of August that year, 1955 was brutally beaten and lynched and his brutal death emphasized the 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 level of violence that black americans were facing on a day-to-day basis and I mean, it's 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 something that that I urge. Listen, anyone who's who's interested in this period of history and is interested in the themes that this episode raises, uh, and may not be aware of Emmett Till, um, do go out and find out. But I will inform you of one important thing, which is, one, not only did he receive, not only was he brutally murdered, two, he was only fourteen years old, so he was still a child. And three, when it was his funeral, when it was his wake, his mother made a point where she wanted it to be an open casket. And the photograph of his... You can see this online if you wish. Um, the, his, 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 the photograph um, was, was published in papers at the time. And um, the, the effects of his brutal beating are, are, are evident. So, mm-hmm. not only have you got—I know I keep on repeating myself—but I think I think this is su- superbly written. Not only have you got a line of dialogue which threatens violence. Not only do we see the violence aimed at one of one of the regulars, which is Ryan, 
but we also have a reference to a real historic real historical um brutal death that took place earlier in the year that this story was set in and not forgetting that Emmett Till wasn't wasn't unique in his death um many others many others were lynched as well there's an awful lot going on in this episode and I think you know it's incredibly powerful and well researched and I think everyone involved in the making of Rosa Par uh, in Rosa um should be applauded I think it's a phenomenal episode and I think that with this kind of thing, there's always a chance that there could have been a bad reaction. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, not wishing to go into it, there are naturally some people who have um, who dislike the episode. Some of them are for for genuine um, reasons where they're not being keen on the direction for whatever reason or certain production choices. Uh, but there are others who have gone on about how the episode is nothing but political correctness gone mad, you know, type thing. Um, mm. I can perhaps understand up to a point of why, of, of that being a reaction when they found out that this was something that was going to be explored in the, in the series. But as we've talked about, prompted by that Telegraph news article, this theme isn't new to the show. What is new is that it's a story that it's it's that you know it's thrown at the viewer um my, my personal reaction to it is i think it's i think it's a phenomenal piece of work um people whom i know who are just you know they're not doctor who fans they just like the show they've praised it to the hilt um reaction that i've seen across the board is that many people applaud it, and not not only all this, not only are people enjoying it uh, as an episode in of itself, but it's also sparked a um, a very positive reaction, which is um, people are wanting to talk about these issues. And this, you know, the episode hasn't wasn't broadcast all that long ago. This is within a very short space of time. You know, children are asking about this. And, and wanting to find out about it. Mm. And that goes back to what Chris Chibnall wanted to do, which is let's have these historical stories, which which, which look at these important themes. And I, I think he's done it really, really well. Yeah, I think whatever you think of this episode, I, I, I reckon most people will agree that it was a powerful episode, regardless. Oh, yeah, yeah, without a doubt. It, um, it, you know, it does have a massive impact. Yeah, whichever... Whichever way you fall, whether you like it, such as myself and yourself, and whether you're someone who doesn't, the, the, mm. you just have to look at the reaction it has received. That that it has been a powerful episode, and I think it will be one that people will will undoubtedly remember for many, many years to come. So, with the setting in America, I thought the period setting was really convincing, and it didn't it didn't need to try too hard to be convincing. No, that's true. I thought the the level of production was superb. I be, I really believe that I was, you know, watching something take place in America uh, in nineteen fifty five. Mm-hmm. The the detail. Uh, it was spectacular. It really, really was. It was it was production on on the highest level. It was um there wasn't anything that, that took me out of it. I was I was gripped by it. Obviously there's the the strong writing which we've we've spoken about. Um the director and the cinematographer of the Ghost Monument have returned uh, and I praised their work in that episode and they they followed it through spectacularly. Just uh, everything there is one thing that I wasn't too keen on um which was towards the end of the episode when Rosa Parks um, refuses to give up her seat and is then arrested. There's a song that plays over that. Uh, and I, I don't know what your reaction was. I wasn't keen on the use of that song. And in fact, the song also is um, is used as the music for the end credits. Mm. The reason why I wasn't keen on that was because I felt that it was trying to oversell the moment. And I didn't think that needed to happen. Um, it's just a slight, slight quibble. Uh, it's nothing major. But the reason why I wasn't keen on it was I didn't think it was necessary. And I think I would say to those involved in the making of this episode is that you did a spectacular job in the writing, in the acting, 
in the directing, the editing and the cinematography, where with the audience realised the weight of that moment and what it meant for everyone involved. And I think it should have been allowed to play naturally. Um, having that song, mm-hmm. to me, sort of, maybe they, to me it's sort of like, no, have confidence in what you've done. You don't need to massively oversell this moment by using, I thought was, I think it was trying to yeah. force the emotion which was which was already there it was like no have confidence in what you've done you've done something spectacular just sell the moment naturally um well i think it's an interesting point you made about the end credits not having the, the usual mm-hmm. theme tune and i believe this is the first episode since earthshock not to have the main theme at the end yes yes that's right and it's interesting again to compare it with earthshock that was that was quite impactful by running it in silence, wasn't it? And maybe that would have been effective in this episode. I think arguably even more so, because in Earthshock, um, you had something dramatic take place, which was the death of a companion. Um, it's a bit interesting that Jonathan Turner, who was the producer at the time, made that decision to run the credits silently. It could be argued that was a bit cheesy, but that's something to discuss uh, potentially another time. But on this occasion, had they done mm. that, I don't think it would have been. And the reason being is because I think it would have been a moment of arguably contemplation. Because this was a, a, a very yeah. strong episode covering very important weighty themes. And I think if you ran the credits over silently, I think it w- I think it would have been effective. Yes, okay, you've got the drama of it, and it would have emphasised that. But yeah, I think it would have been a moment of contemplation for the audience and uh, and you know t- to sell it more because we know that this story was based on a real event. Rosa Parks was a real person. Mm. Um, yes, she she wasn't the only one to have. Um, given up her seat this way in a, in a moment of protest but you know she is the person who we remember she was a, a, a massive she was a significant person in the civil rights movement um because of this moment and other things that she did and she was still involved with it uh, for many many years later um and yeah I, th- I think i think that would have been arguably i suppose it's down to taste but yeah i would if it was a, a toss-up between using the song that was used or run the credits over silently, I would have plumbed for the latter. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to watch it again to see how I feel. That that didn't kind of phase me so much, the music. But I uh, understand everything you've just said, yeah. Um, perhaps perhaps it would have been better without it, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, even though that we, you know, we talked about this a bit, I don't want to make it a, like like it's a massive deal. It's just a slight quibble that I have, mm-hmm. because in the grand scheme of things, in terms of the entire episode, really it's not that important. Um, everything else I found to be spectacular, and I I still think it was a great um, um, a great piece of television drama. And it was interesting that Graham was the one who made her give up her seat. Yes, it was, and once again, um, essentially, that was that was a tough moment for him. Yeah, it was, and it, and, and once again, I have to give uh, huge kudos to to Bradley Walsh, given an excellent performance as, as Graham, really, really um, pitching every moment perfectly. But that uh, moment towards the end of realizing that he's the one who is responsible for something awful in order to have something great take place, I thought was uh, was fantastic. And and Jodie Whittaker, uh, again, because I think it was a, it was a, it was a th- sort of like a, a three-way piece between um, Bradley Walsh as Graham, Jodie Whittaker as the Doctor, and Vanette Robinson as Rosa Parks. Um, the way that it was performed, the way it was shot and edited... You had the realisation of what Graham had to do. You had Jodie Whittaker pitching that scene perfectly and and, and delivering that line. Um, you know, 
we can't it was oh, frustratingly i've forgotten the exact words but basically saying you know we can't help her you know and mm-hmm. and then vanette robinson i i mean she played rosa park spectacularly throughout this um throughout the episode but of course it was all building up to that moment of very gentle but very powerful form of protest and once again the words that the writers gave her in that moment and um, Rosa Parks through interviews that she's given and spoken about it testifies to this the words that they gave her in that scene is what she said so it's that wonderful blending of of fiction and reality to deliver that moment yeah it was a really powerful ending um visually i'm guessing as a science fiction episode if you're just there for the entertainment it's anticlimactic if you're not there for the story but it was such a powerful ending yeah yeah that's true i mean i think science fiction is a bit of a strange genre in the way that um people approach it i think a lot of you know there'd be a number of people out there who associate it with sort of lasers and, and things like that and that's fine there's nothing wrong with that sort of science fiction form of entertainment but on the whole the reason why the genre has lasted so long and remained so powerful is because yes you've got the entertainment value that that genre can bring but it's always something that deals with um important themes of the day but it filters it through um something which makes it palatable makes it enjoyable but that isn't to say that it, it, it can't cover themes like this episode does which is racism but you've got that science fiction element to to make it popular and there's nothing wrong with that so speaking of bringing in science fiction elements we've got the villain crisco mm-hmm. um and you could argue that maybe his role in the story was a bit strange but then again i think it really helped the doctor and everyone have a purpose in the story if if he w- if he wasn't there then they wouldn't have anything to do in the build up to the climax would they they would have been there simply to observe but because of his meddling they're keeping things on track yeah yeah that's true but the, once again the way that he is written i think he's written in he the villain's written very well because actually what that demonstrates is another theme of the episode which is anybody through seemingly small things can make a huge difference so the fact that he was you know through small changes was trying to avert something that actually had a massive impact it 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 kind of shows the you know the importance that we as individuals can have so that that so that was that was a good way of of writing writing the villain and really weaving in uh how how he operates into the themes of the story and it's also interesting we have the moment um behind the hotel by the bins with yaz and ryan and they're talking quite optimistically about the future mm-hmm. and then you've got this villain crisco which tells us that these prejudice prejudice views exist in the future quite strongly Yes, that's true. That that is an interesting contrast. Um, but I think you could argue that that's a realistic approach in the sense that, unfortunately, no matter how hard one tries or the progresses that society makes, you will always have um, a number of individuals that will hold some prejudicial view um, in one form or another. Um, but, you know... Th- Having said that, though, we are presented with one villain uh, as opposed to several. Mm -hmm. So, yes, you'll unfortunately arguably still have these prejudicial views in the future, but they will be in the minority. So there's that that balance. But again, going back into how Mm -hmm. discrimination is written into the episode. So you have um, when you have a society which has racism, arguably at the heart of it in such a way, it is. It can affect everything. So, going back to that scene where Ryan is is hit hard across the face, 
you've got it where people will openly discriminate and utilize violence without any form of repercussion. And then later on, we also have a scene where otherwise seemingly normal, decent people um, will hold prejudicial views. And I think that was that was demonstrated when um, Ryan is trying to convince what looks like a, a dear sweet old couple that oh the, the bus hasn't uh, hasn't been cancelled. You can get back on. And he's got no 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 it's fine we'll we'll just walk and they seem like a, a decent normal couple. Um, and then when he sort of presses the point, you you know he turns round and then you know you know says don't tell me what to do, boy. And you see the hatred flash across his face. So that's something else as well where you have seemingly normal decent people um, who probably are. But because the racism is so mm-hmm. enshrined in everything, it, um, you know, it, it affects, you know, sweet people like this. It's, um, so that was another way. It wasn't just, um, wasn't just, you know, people who you would go, right, they're obviously racist. It, it, you know, it affects, affects everyone. Even seemingly nice people will have prejudicial views on, on one form or another. So that was another interesting way that it was, it, it was conveyed. It was, you know, you really get a sense that this is a society that is affected, that that racism permeates every single level, every single person in one form or another. I think whether it's religious views, racial views or political views, I think it just resonates through a society, doesn't it? Especially from a young age, it's kind of indoctrinated into your children, isn't it? The The views of a society and it has quite a strong impact yeah yeah that's true so in order to affect these changes it's um and in order for it to mean something it can be very frustrating um but it but it is a slow change but it, you know it's it's one of those mm. frustrating things you need people to to be brave like rosa parks um and make these stands at risks to themselves mm. Uh, and be you know tremendously brave, but then there's the frustrating thing as well is that these changes um, have to be they, well they don't have to be, but the nature of them these changes are you know slow in order, because that's the nature of the beast that you're that you're dealing with. But then in order for the for the for the positive changes to take place, they have to really start to embed themselves, and that in itself um, is is a slow process and. I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't want to be focusing on America. I'm only doing so because the story is, is set in America. But um, mm-hmm. uh, when I visited uh, America back in 2014, I um, I visited New York, um, Washington, D.C., and, um, and Philadelphia. And what was interesting was when I was in Washington, D.C., there was a group of, of black activists who were protesting outside the Capitol building. Um, you know, and I was just being a tourist, but I, I was curious to see what they were pr- protesting about. And this was 2014. Um, Obama mm-hmm. is president at the time, and what these black protesters were protesting about was the fact that there's massive, there's still massive discrimination against uh, black people and their ability to register to vote, um, which I was shocked by. I mean, Rosa. Bringing back to Rosa Parks, uh, mm. some black people were allowed to, were allowed to vote um, during the, the early period of when she was alive, uh, and she she tried to register to vote on several occasions. I think she was successful on the third. Black people weren't allowed to vote until I think nineteen sixty five in America, uh, and then you know, and then really? yeah, and then. And then there's me visiting America in 2014, and it's still a bit of an issue. I mean, that's you know, that's mm. staggering. Yeah, I think it's a worry that um, all these issues we're just used to, and it's it's hard to move past them. And if you look at the issues that Yasmin raises about the the treatment she has in her life, mm-hmm. these are issues that we we hear from people all the time, and tragically. We think of it as just it's just the way things are and um, it takes we obviously we need to find a way to move past that 
Yes, so that goes into that that, that scene that you're talking about between Yasmin and Ryan, because I think it's Ryan who makes the point, which is that you know that these things are still being dealt with today, arguably not to the same extent, because we've you know we have we've made you know massive leaps and bounds, but there's always you know there's always um, something that has you know some other hurdle that has to has to be dealt with. So one thing I was wondering about, you know, um, when the Doctor goes to the bus driver's house and says he's won the raffle, mm-hmm. um, he says it's a good job Elvis lent Frank the phone. Does that mean she really arranged a trip for him? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. By the sounds of it, I think uh, she used her contact with Elvis to, right. to arrange that concert or whatever it was with Frank Sinatra. I know. So yeah, because at first I felt I felt really bad for the bloke, <laughs> but maybe he's really gone. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. But by the sounds of it, right? um, yeah, yeah. I think by the sounds of it, though, that uh, that was she did manage to organise that. But that raises another question, and that is, is the Doctor Banksy? Nah. No. <laughs> I don't think the Doctor's Banksy, <laughs> and the reason for that is because yeah. I don't think the Doctor would make such a, such a dickish move. By having a piece of his or her work shredded after someone's paid over a million pounds for it. The Doctor's that not much of a dick. So no, I don't think the Doctor's Banksy for that very reason. But the Doctor's got a lot of enemies that would like to shred her work. (laughs) Oh damn it, Robert. I thought I had a really good uh, argument of why the Doctor isn't Banksy. You've just... Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, it'd be like in The Curse of Fatal Death, the master would be like, yeah, but I went back in time and installed a shredder in your picture. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, new details about the TARDIS this week. We had the moving time rotor crystal thing, Mm -hmm. which I thought, I I was a bit disappointed that maybe it was going to be a static centrepiece that didn't Mm -hmm. move. But when I did see it moving this week, I thought, hmm, that looks a bit cheap what did you think oh i thought i thought it's it's meant to be a big solid bulky thing and it was just flowing up and down what what did you think it looked looked effective i think it was probably as effective as it's going to be i I know what you mean i think i think there's a sense of when you see it moving i think it's that thing of when you know how tv i think it's it's probably those things if if a child watches it I think it's probably believable. I think as an adult, because you know how TV and film is put together up to a certain point, there are perhaps certain things that you can't suspend your disbelief. Maybe it's one of those things of, you know, the reality, which is mm-hmm. it's a big piece of plastic moving up and down as a, as a, as a, <laughs> as opposed to a bit of crystal. Um, I know what you mean. F- funnily enough, it, it was one of those things which, um, I was aware of and I was going um, maybe it's not as maybe it doesn't look as believable as I hoped it would um, maybe it's the lighting I'm not mm-hmm. sure I mean it's, it's not something that massively over uh, particularly bothers me I'm still really impressed with the design of the, the new console no. room I still think it looks fantastic Yeah. but now that you've mentioned it it's um, yeah maybe not as believable as it could be but um Having said that, though, I still think Maybe, it's a, but yeah, we'll uh, see. Still, I still think it's a good design. Yeah, and once again, the TARDIS has been misbehaving. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It was sort not, of, there was a big thing of um, yeah. yeah, there was a big thing of how the Doctor's been trying to get them back to Sheffield and it's got it wrong nineteen times or something like that. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is. Um, I mean, that could be taken of, oh, it's just a bit of a joke and the TARDIS is, is misbehaving itself. But then there was a sense that the TARDIS ended up landing um, where it eventually did in 1955 America was because there was that problem with Archeron energy. So, because of the Archeron energy. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. I mean, it could be it could, it could be argued this is probably looking into it a bit too much. But was the TARDIS landing in the other places because it was picking up something similar, and we've been following what? What was mm-hmm. the villain, villain's name again? Crisco. 
Yeah, it has it been following Crisco? Um, at, you know, yeah. through his previous exploits. I'm not sure. It might be looking into it a bit too much, but yeah, the TARDIS does seem to be have been misbehaving a bit. With Crisco, um, I noticed obviously the vortex manipulator and storm cage, which was where River was mm-hmm. held. Yeah, yeah, I picked up those references, but I think um, I think it's probably those things which are you know, nice little details for for the fans to pick up on. But other than that, I think mm-hmm. it was it was really there just to explain who's this, who this person was you know we are aware you know because the doctor effectively explains you know it, it's a high security prison for serious criminals um it just happens to have the name that fans will be aware of you've got the the vortex manipulator mm. and that's explain what that does so i think those were things which serviced the plot and um made us aware of who this man is whilst giving little nods to um to fans who'll be watching but other than that, I, d- mm. I, d- I don't think that's something that will be massively picked up on later. Whether he comes back or not is another mm. matter. But Yeah, he did quite abruptly just get sent away. And it did feel a bit open-ended, but it did it did service the story in the way it needed to. Yeah, that's true. And um, sort of Ryan coming to the rescue. But it's interesting that this is two episodes in a row where he seems to be quite ha- you know um, quite trigger-happy in some respects. So in the first episode, we had the coming soon trailer, which were which highlighted uh, a few of the actors from the upcoming episodes. Mm-hmm. And one of the big reveals was Chris North at the end. Oh yes, I know who he is. Um, I know him from in the uh, what was it called, The Good Wife. And he's obviously in next week's episodes. Yeah, yeah. Um, very well respected actor. Uh, Peter Min things I know him from The Good Wife but it's quite nice to uh, see another actor another you know really good actor of his calibre appearing in the series so it'd be quite interesting to um, to see what he does it's a bit funny um, I'm not particularly looking forward to the next episode the reason being is because scare uh, spiders creep the hell out of me it's one of my irrational fears I cannot stand <laughs> spiders I love spiders I'm not sure you all right, okay. I've just got a memory of you. I remember you were trying you were desperately trying to get a hold of the Planet of the Spiders VHS. Oh yeah, I remember that. Well what happened was um this was in the early days of when I was getting into Doctor Who and um in Newcastle, Eldon Square, we used to have the BBC shop. And I went I went mm. in there and one day I went in and they had Plant of the Spiders and another um, another Doctor Who story that I was interested in getting. And at that point, John Pertwee was my favourite Doctor. And I thought, oh, I'll get Planet of the Spiders. Mm. But at the same time, because I'm not particularly keen on spiders, I thought, oh, mm, I'll hold off mm-hmm. on that and I'll get that another day. So I bought whatever the, the, the next story was. But in the meantime, what ended up happening was Planet of the Spiders ended up being deleted. It was no longer available. And so it became a story that I really, really wanted to get. Um, and I remember this was a few years later. I was in WH Smith. Um, and at that point, yeah, I think I was eight years old. And they had a Doctor Who book section. And I was having a look at that. And there was a woman who must have been in her 30s at the time. And I remember she was just sort of like looking at me. All right, okay. And then when my, because my mother had been elsewhere in the shop, and when she came round, that's when the woman decided to talk to me because she knew I was there with a pair, uh, with my parent, and it wouldn't be weird. And she was just basically saying, um, mm-hmm. "Oh, it's absolutely amazing. Someone as young as you is 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 into Doctor Who." So it turned out she was a massive fan, and we ended up talking. And I think she was also a Buddhist. And I mentioned, I really want to watch Planet of the Spiders, and then she, she suddenly got really, really excited. Um, and then going, oh, that's my, my favourite story. It's absolutely fantastic. It's a great John Pertwee story. I'm a Buddhist. There's lots of Buddhist stuff in it. And then she ended up really selling the story to the nth degree, to the point where it was like the story that I already mm-hmm. that I already wanted to watch. It was just like, oh, damn it. I really... And I just couldn't get my hands on it. So I, I, I didn't... Um, it wasn't until it was released on DVD that I finally got to watch it. 
But again, that wasn't helpful because I was watching the story and I was watching it um, episodically. And I don't know what happened. During the time I was watching the story, my house had a massive spider infestation. So <laughs> No way. Oh, it, it was really... It just creeped me out. I couldn't stand it. And it was really odd because as soon as I stopped watching it, the spiders vanished. I mean, obviously, it's just a coincidence, but the timing of it just really... It, it didn't help. So, yeah. What, what are we talking about here? Like, really big spiders? It was sort of like a... a um, yeah, r- relatively. I mean, I t- although that's not the scariest one. It was really odd. I'd, um, yeah, they were quite big, but the biggest one was I'd, I'd, because um, I quite like the Alien movies, and I'd finished watching. I ended up, I was just in the mood of watching Alien, and uh, finished watching it, and then as soon as I went in my bedroom, there was a, there was a, I've never seen a spider this big. It was, it was literally the size of my hand. It, it just made me think it was a mi- it was a mini face hugger. I freaked out. It's just yeah. I think it was yeah. It, <laughs> I, oh god, spiders! I can't stand them. Um, so <laughs> I, if I get another spider infestation when I come round to watching arachnids in uh, what's it called? Arachnids in the UK or whatever the episode's called. Um, if I have another spider infestation, it's it. Uh, I'm going to be a nervous wreck. Shame. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, they don't really bother me. I hate moths. If they do a moth episode, oh. Oh, have you ever seen the Mothman prophecies? No. <laughs> All right, okay. It's, if you don't like moths, it's it's probably probably not the movie to watch. But yeah, I get that. Moths are a bit, <laughs> especially the big ones. Yeah, they're even worse when they start eating you through, through your clothes. <laughs> <laughs> not while you're wearing them out. <laughs> no, not at all. No, but it's just like oh, I'm gonna have nightmares tonight. Yeah, oh, oh great, <laughs> spiders and moths. So yeah, yet again this week, the next time trailer was really brief and it didn't give anything away, which I think is good because the time was, I used to, I used to turn it off before the end tales finished, so I wouldn't it would it wouldn't spoil the final episode. Yeah, I think. Um... I think in the in the past they perhaps haven't had that balance right of trying to entice audiences to tune in next week without giving too much away. Um, I think now that that they've actually got that balance really well, there's enough um, things in there to be tantalising and give you a little glimpse of of what the story is going to be about, um, without but in the same way of of not giving too much away. So yeah, I think I think they finally got the um, the advertising the publicity right. For the show yeah it's annoying when the trailer reveals too much like oh the Daleks are showing up and you didn't even know mm-hmm. I think the worst case uh, for me though was when uh, back when Peter Capaldi was the Doctor which was it was a complete it, it had been a complete surprise that the Doctor was going to arrive on Gallifrey and then it mm. was given in it, then it was given away in the plots uh, the very brief plot synopsis the week before the episode was uh, was broadcast, that Gallifrey is going to return. Um, so, and I came across that purely by accident. It wasn't as if I was specifically looking for the plot synopsis. It was I came across it by accident, and I oh, thought, right. "Oh, you you've given what was supposed to be a big surprise away," which was which was a bit frustrating. Well, I didn't know that. I didn't find out beforehand. Oh. But it's it's usually the case with these things, you know. You, you, um, you or you come across spoilers, and you always think, oh, "What if I didn't know? It'd be a big payoff." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Never mind. But again, with that story, um, looking back at Hellbent, the following story, um, that trailer kind of implied that maybe the Doctor was going to regenerate, didn't it? If you remember. But ultimately, it was um, it was the General, whatever his name was. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was I wasn't keen on that moment when it turned up in the episode. I mean, I appreciate that you know the the the, the yeah. general had regenerations, but the doctor's just um, has just shot someone. He's a, he's killed them actually, which brings a point which uh, which we began with at the beginning of this podcast when uh, Daniel mm-hmm. Martinez was um, was talking about how the doctors used guns before. I completely forgotten about that. Yeah, the, the doctors actually shot the time lord and killed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. And then he re- regenerated into a woman. 
as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. So all in all, I think we both found this to be a very strong episode covering very important themes and looking at Rosa Parks, a very important uh, historical figure. There's a lot more to find out about Rosa Parks. This is just a nice way in. If, if you're interested in finding more, there's many things that you can do. There are plenty of books, um, plenty of things online and so on. But on this podcast, we're going to sign off a little differently. Um, we think it appropriate if for the next few minutes we actually hear from Rosa Parks herself. Um, this is an excerpt of an interview that she gave back in 1995. I was arrested on December 1st, 1955 for refusing to stand upon the orders of the bus driver after the uh, white seats had been occupied in the front. And of course I was not in the front of the bus as many people and many people have ridden and spoken that I was, that I got on the bus and took a front seat, but I did not. I took a seat that was just back of where the white people were sitting. And in fact, the last seat, and the man was next to the window, and I took an aisle seat, and there were two women across. And we went on undisturbed until uh, about the second or third stop when some white people boarded the bus and left one man standing. And when the driver noticed him standing, he told us to stand up and let him have those seats. He referred to them as front seats. And when uh, the other uh, three people, after some hesitancy, uh, stood up, he wanted to know if I was going to stand. I told him I was not, and he told me he would have me arrested. And I told him he may do that. And of course he did. He uh, didn't move the bus any further than where we were. And went out of the bus, I stood in the door, and several people got off. Didn't any white people get off, but several other black people got off. And Shortly uh, uh, thereafter, he, the two po policemen came on the bus, and one asked me if uh, the driver had told me to stand, and I said yes. And he wanted to know why I didn't stand. I told him I didn't think I should have to stand up. And then I asked him why did they push us around, and he um, said, and I quote him, I don't know, but the law is the law and you are under arrest. And with that, I got off the bus under arrest. It was put in the paper that I had been arrested. And of course, there were people, Mr. E.D. Nixon, who was the legal redress uh, chairman of the NAACP, uh, the, the Montgomery branch of the NAACP. And he'd been made a number of calls during the night. And on a number of ministers, and they set a meeting for this. I was arrested on a Thursday evening, and on Friday evening is when they had the meeting at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church where Dr. Martin Luther King was a pastor. And a number of citizens came, and I told them the story. And then from then on, it became no uh, news about my being arrested, and on my trial, which was December 5th, is when they found me guilty, and I was, uh, uh, the lawyers, uh, Fred Gray and Charles Langford, who were representing me, they filed an appeal. And of course, I didn't pay any uh, fine, they set uh, a, a, a meeting at the Holt Street Baptist Church on the evening of uh, December 5th, because that was a, December 5th was the day the people stayed off in large numbers and did not ride the bus. In fact, most of the buses 
I think all of them were just about empty, with the exception maybe a, a very, very few people. And when they found out that one day's protest had kept the people off the bus, they made a, uh, well, came to a vote actually, and it was unanimously decided that they would not ride the buses anymore until changes for the better were made.